This episode of Policing Matters is brought to you by Lexipol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support, and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit Lexipol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Hey, maybe you're watching this on YouTube and welcome. And if you're not, then check us out on the PoliceOne.com YouTube channel. If you're in law enforcement, given the nature of the job, there will be injuries. If you make arrests, it's only a matter of time and it may be a question of severity. You may encounter a resistive suspect. You may make traffic stops. A pursuit may lead to a collision. Sometimes an injury may be obvious and apparent, but some may be deceptive. Ever shake it off after a knockdown drag out fight? Ever get into a minor vehicle fender bender and walk it off? Sure you have. Well, today's guest, Stephanie Samuels. Stephanie Samuels is a psychotherapist who works exclusively with police officers. Ms. Samuels has lectured all over the country on PTSD and vicarious trauma, including undiagnosed PTSD and the fallout from departmental silence after officers are involved in critical incidents, as well as how traumatic pasts play a part in the officer's career. Ms. Samuels is part of a renowned national research team looking into the role concussions play in the mental health of law enforcement officers and the potential connection to suicide. She's also the founder and director of Copline, a 24-7, 365-day-a-year hotline answered by vetted, trained, and retired officers to engage with callers from anything from a bad day to a full-blown mental health crisis. Active and retired officers and their families can call the line. You can see the links in our show notes or call 1-800-COP-LINE to access the service. Stephanie has been working with a team of researchers in areas of police stressors and suicide, as well as working with neurosurgeons and neuroscientists to look at the role repeated head injuries play in mental health disorders in the law enforcement community and the probable link to chronic, traumatic encephalopathy or CTE in officer suicides. Well, welcome to Policing Matters, Stephanie Samuels. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I truly appreciate it. Yeah, I've seen the work you've done. I've seen you on interviews. And I just want to thank you, first of all, for what you do on Copline and the service that you provide there. Truly my honor. You know, I've always felt like I, I do the light lift and and all the officers do the heavy lift. So I, I'm glad that I could do something. Well, you've done so much on the research on PTSD and the effects on police officers, and you're now working with others on the effects of head trauma on cops. Tell us a little bit about that. So um, so I've been working with law enforcement for about 35 years in private practice. And, um, and Copline was my pay forward. Uh, about 18 years ago, I, I created Copline. And no matter what we seem to be doing um, in, in our arena to help officers, we're just struggling with being able to reduce suicide. 
And, you know, there's, there's, you know, funds that are available, whether it's grant money or what have you, I, I just, you know, you, you can't, you can't throw a stone in a, in a first responder location any longer without seeing somebody that has thrown something up there um, to call, to write, to, to meet, to, to do whatever. And yet we're not able to, to see a reduction, you know, uh, I've looked at blue suicide, and um, and had specifically asked them to to send me kind of since 2016 what um, what those numbers have been, and and unfortunately we're just not seeing any reduction from from 2016 even to now. So the question was, what's missing? And there were there were different factors um, after the the January 6th riots we started hearing more about concussions. Metropolitan PD uh, started looking at, at concussions and the role that it played in the death of one of their officers after he had, um, it, was, uh, it was Jeffrey Smith, after he had died by suicide, nine days after um, he had been in the Capitol. His body cam shows two, uh, two major uh, concussions, one of them with loss of consciousness, the other one inside um, the Capitol the other one outside when a pole actually hit him in the head. Um, he was also exposed to flashbangs. Flashbangs is also known as concussion grenades. And we know that it's factor multiplied with head injuries if you do not um, heal from a concussion. So two major concussions sustained that day. And we know from his widow that, um, that his personality changed we know that um, that a lot of the behavioral components uh, she saw changing as well as the cognitive. And nine days later, he ended up dying by suicide. So what we also know is that post-traumatic stress disorder can't be diagnosed for 30 days post-incident. So when we look at it, he can have acute stress disorder, as most people would have being involved in you know, a pretty traumatic uh, event. But but there had to be something else that was going on. So, um, so prior to that, I had also been thinking about this, this missing piece and looking at the frontal lobe and looking at impulse control and looking at how my officers were getting jammed up, quite honestly. Um, looking at substance abuse, why when substance abuse, when they ended up having issues with, um, with either medications or alcohol, it had a grip on them like nothing before and nothing after. And so, um, so when I started looking at executive functioning, frontal lobe, and you start really piecing things together, you think to yourself, oh, wait a second. All these behavioral and emotional pieces that we've been looking at can be described the same way as a head injury, that the overlap was so significant. So it's like, oh. So, I, so I, I started doing concussion intakes in my practice. I have a very large private practice. And many of these guys have been with me for over 10 years. So I had known about, you know, about past history, you know, Profile of a cop is somebody who has grown up in crisis, does well in crisis, doesn't know how to live without crisis. Issues with a father figure, significant loss early in life, history of abuse, emotional, physical, sexual, and neglect. Makes for a good cop, 
makes for a difficult home life. But in that profile, I didn't look at the potential issues with head injuries beginning from very early on from abuse. So when I started doing the concussion intakes in my private practice, that most of my guys hadn't been diagnosed as with most people with concussions. So when I said to them, you know, and, and now I'm going on about concussions and they're like, you know, never been diagnosed. So that was really interesting. But when I asked them how many years they had played contact sports, when I asked about childhood abuse, when I asked about military, when I asked about falling out of trees, when I asked about being bullied, when, when, you, when you go into those other pieces and then you, you ask that famous question of how many times have you gotten your bell rung? And they're like, countless, countless. I mean, you know, I, I'm older. And, and, you know, I know that, you know, I was an active child I played, I played sports and I, I believe we're just a bunch of, of concussed adults walking around whose parents said, shake it off. We've been shaking off concussions since we've been three years old. Um, but now you get into the field of law enforcement and you don't count the fights and you don't count the fender benders. And you don't count your training in the police academy. You don't count the grappling. You don't count the boxing. You don't count the going to trainings and the, the defensive tactics, um, the violent suspect encounters, the, um, the, the, the issues with inclement weather. They just, what we know is the brain keeps score. And as it's been keeping score, we haven't been. We've never looked at this. And, um, and so, so when I began looking at this, I thought, well, you know, I can't be the only one. So Beverly, Dr. Beverly Anderson out of Metro PD um, started, started dealing with concussions there and, and a protocol there. An executive order went in from the chief. So that was being addressed. And then I started looking at and thinking to myself, what about CTE with, with officers that are dying by suicide? That's never been looked at. So, um, so Matt Walsh, who I think you guys are familiar with, he published a brilliant article in Police One. Um, he, is, he has his MSW, but he is in law enforcement. He's uh, the assistant commissioner in Florida um, for the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, that he, um, that he had done a a survey for his master's on CTE and, and found, you know, statistically high number of officers as well. But because we can't diagnose CTE until they're dead, we have to go off of symptoms. But what we hadn't looked at was how many of our officers are being diagnosed with these mental health conditions, PTSD, depression, anxiety. Those are, those are the big three that we say, and certainly the big three that I say, and how many of them have been diagnosed, but we've never looked at comorbidity. So, um, so I, we do a lot of work in, in Texas. Um, Copline has a, has a stronghold there. And, um, and my private practice, as far as a clinician goes, been able to, um, to really be able to talk about some of these, these effects don't treat anybody there, but certainly as a clinician, it's what I do. 
and had established a very close relationship with Texas Municipal Police Association, TMPA, about 28,000 members strong. And I approached them to do a pilot survey um, with, a, uh, with a neurosurgeon out of Oakland, uh, California, Dr. Edie Zussman. Uh, she's been looking at this with domestic violence and, um, and she's been working with law enforcement, but her interesting piece was that she was trying to help law enforcement identify concussions with victims because when, vict when police officers go to homes um, and deal with domestic violence, a lot of times they're dealing with, um, it's typically a female that has um, been the victim and that they're having a problem remembering facts, um, they seem a little disoriented, various other things. And a lot of times officers believe that they're hiding something, that they are protecting the perpetrator, that they don't realize that they're concussed. They can be concussed from strangulation, they can be concussed from a physical hit or what have. So, so her role in this was, was to help officers identify that um, and didn't really kind of look at, because she hadn't been involved with law enforcement like I have. So we kind of married this, this, this belief. And so we sent out um, the questionnaire and we got back um, a little over 600, almost 700 um, uh, surveys. And what became really important was of the individuals, and, and the survey was somewhat flawed um, in different factors. I don't believe the data was flawed, but as far as like if, if they stopped answering questions, if they, they couldn't skip a question, so it would then cut them off from the survey. Mm. So, um, so, one of the, so one of the factors, and this is what became really important, was of the individuals that had been diagnosed by a mental health professional like myself, that had been diagnosed with PTSD, how many of them had sustained, you know, head injuries and how many? So we found that over 93% of the individuals that had been diagnosed with PTSD had sustained one or more concussions. However, just like I saw in my practice, well over 80% of them had sustained five or more concussions. 50% had sustained 15 or more. Now I need to tell you, the NFL has said, if you sustain three or more concussions, you are to look to retire. Over 80% had sustained five or more. So this is where we then looked at this is kind of, this is something that absolutely has to be looked at. This is, we are now walking the path that needs to be walked for true suicide prevention. So what we realized was that every single officer that's been diagnosed with PTSD needs to have a intake with a neurologist, neuropsychologist or whomever but absolutely needs to go into that arena. So yeah, yeah, you're jumping ahead of me. So you you are already going with the recommendations, and that's that's great. And and I'd love to see more of the findings to see what the questions were, and uh, outside of, were these 
officers outside of Texas or is this the small group from or the no, large group? So it's Texas? the small so so it's the small group inside of Texas. So the next research, um, so the one that we put in for a very sizable grant that we are now working with um with the individuals that have been looking at the NFL for the past 20 years, including Dr. Cantu, who has been on the NFL's commission and what have you, looking at that, um, actually is an outsider, not an insider. So he wasn't all that well liked. Um, but um, but being able to now do this in a way that it is truly empirical data, that what we are looking at is going to meet the highest threshold for publication. And this was an arena that I was not all that familiar with, you know, these informal surveys or what have you. When you now go into looking at publishing in Journal of Neuro, uh, Neuroscience, um, Journal of American Medicine, there are, um, there's an internal review board, it's an IRB, um, that, all of, that all of these, um, surveys have to go through. It's a standard when you're using humans, um, although it should be exempt from it because we don't have the interaction with the humans. And I know we're going to get to that later on. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that and, and how this data is collected or what have you, because we really are keeping it confidential. Sure. So, um, so being able to do that and then using absolutely empirical data. So using some of those, um, those different uh, scales that have been tried and true throughout the years to be able to look at both um, the, the concussion symptoms as well as um, the PTSD, the anxiety, the depression. So, that, um, so this would be a, a, a very different survey that goes out but being able to explain and what we're hoping to be able to do is get an NFL player um, or the like to be able to do just like a, a 30 second blurb that goes out with the survey explaining why it is so important. Cops are so hypervigilant. Filling out these surveys is not what they're going to be looking forward to. And they're going to wonder, is this going to jam me up? Is this going to cost me my career? Rather than being able to you know, have somebody that says, we need this so that we can save lives. Yeah, um, Dr. to himself, um, when I interviewed him, said that he believes that we are going to find um, the same percentage of CTE in law enforcement that we find that they found in the NFL. And that's alarming. Yeah, well, I, I want to definitely get more into that, especially if we talk about NFL and we know that you know, games are televised, even practices are uh, videotaped, and and we can actually go back and find out the exact moment the, the collision occurred that probably led to the concussion. Not so much in, with police officers. I mean, they have body-worn cameras, but um, if they're not activated and they get in a collision or a spontaneous uh interaction with a violent suspect that's not recorded, um, we don't have that that defining moment where the concussion probably occurs. I want to ask you about that in a minute, but first, I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly, serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities. Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, 
behavioral health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire and rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, visit lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. And we're back, and I'm speaking with Stephanie Samuels, founder and director of Copline, the 24-7 helpline for police officers, now working through her private practice on research on repeated head injuries to police officers. So we talked a little bit about the NFL and how they track and record uh, concussions and that we don't really know about everything about the CTE until post-mortem when they're actually looking at the brain. Um, what can we do to eliminate or at least minimize the effects that that may be uh, leading to CT, the LIOCA annual stats rate vehicle collisions on the top of the two or three causes of police officers' deaths. Will there be recommendations for better seat belts, uh, airbags, better airbags, or maybe even helmets? So, um, so interestingly enough, what the NFL and the most recent um, research is showing is it's not the concussions that are the cause of the CTE. It is repetitive head trauma. It is, it is a G-force over time that literally starts when we are kids and the brain keeps score. So they are looking at the thousands of sub-concussive hits. We look at, so soccer players, BMX. We just had our first BMX in 2016 that the the BMX racer was um, competitor, was diagnosed um, after suicide with CTE. So, um, So although we believed that it was going to be concussions, it's not. It is those sub-concussive blows. So one of the concerns, so they've gotten better at, they've gotten better helmets. They have gotten, um, they've gotten better equipment. They've hit harder with them. So knowing that it's the G force and the hits and the sub concussive pieces that we do get to see the concussions they 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 are you know they're they're for us to to see but we're not watching two three years ago however many before the protocol in the NFL was put in place all the practices the contact practices because figuring games it's not that that much contact for everybody in training of course it is because everybody participates but not on game day so that was something that that they looked at, and that is what the the research is showing. So now I look at police, and now comes the oh crap moment. The what what do you do to kind of insulate the brain? Because it's not necessarily that one concussion. So yes, that can change personality or what have you, but that doesn't develop CTE. So there are two different components. So after an officer has a concussion and their behavior starts to change their personality, um, they become depressed, anxious, that doesn't mean 
that this is the beginning necessarily of tau building up in the brain. This can be from post-concussion syndrome. One of the really interesting things that Dr. Zussman had me start to do with my patients, and this is where it, it became overly alarming, was to be able to take a finger and kind of go out and then bring it into the nose. And most of us should be split about five centimeters off. My law enforcement officers in my practice were between 12 and 18 inches from their nose. And that was the first like concrete sign that was truly, truly alarming. So after concussions, although everybody looks okay, being able to deal with some of the ocular issues, some of the vestibular, the balance stuff, you know, when it, when somebody turns their head really quickly and they, they kind of, the, they have that moment, they don't realize that that's most likely from post-concussion syndrome. They just kind of keep going. So those are the pieces that we need to be better educated because if we're going to stop suicide, if we're going to deal with truly mental health, we need this other prong in place. So when we look at protocols and the officer was in a motor vehicle accident, we've gotten much better, I think, with sending them to the shrink. But the shrink now needs to be able to do the concussion intake and say, okay, so you were thrown from, from, from a vehicle, you know, pedestrian versus motor vehicle, you were thrown, you know, you ended up with physical injuries. What about, you know, your head? No, I was okay. So you landed 20 feet away and you didn't jar your brain. No, you know, I, I was okay. You know, I, I've, I got, you know, my, my legs, my arm, my, my, this, uh, oh, okay. The answer is you did jar your brain, but we didn't look at that. And the other issue is our imaging is not showing concussion. So you're involved in a motor vehicle accident and cops will tell you if they are concerned that their head hit, they'll have a CAT scan. They're looking for a brain bleed, right? Hmm. But what they don't tell you is that 24, 48 hours later is when they should be brought in for an MRI. Well, I can certainly tell you that workers' comp is not going to say, <laughs> back in for an MRI, they're not going to pay for it. Private insurance is going to say, hey, it was a work-related incident. We're not paying for that MRI. But even then with an MRI, it's rare that we find anything. We don't have the imaging yet. That's that good. You know, and there's all this work on, or talk about brain mapping and this and that. That's, there's just nothing that's truly showing what it needs to, because if it did, every returning soldier would have an MRI and they would look for those TBIs. They'd look for the underlying issues. They don't see it. Even the PET scans, there's been, there's been recent um, talk on PET scans. They do show um, and I dealt with this with Dr. Cantu, and again, I'm not the expert um, at all. I'm learning like everybody else out there that although PET scans can pick up some incredibly blurry in, um, images of what can be tau protein, what they really diagnose from 
is the behavior, is the symptoms that go along with it. And those symptoms are the ones that we're seeing with law enforcement that we've only been diagnosing with the mental health portion of this. Right. So we're not, we're not actually, we're only, we're only diagnosing the symptoms after the fact. So you Correct. heard my introduction. I, men, I mentioned vehicle collisions and dealing with combative uh, offenders. Should we be doing mandatory testing after these? What would that look like? And I just heard uh, about an officer who going to a call of violent suspects puts a mouth guard in. And I'm thinking we've got to do better than that. So what, what can we do as a preventative measure after we identify the, um, the injury? It's, it is a great question. And I will tell you, I just threw that out um, to, um, to Dr. Dansevar, to, um, to Chris Nowinski, who's the other co-founder of, um, of the uh, Concussion Legacy Foundation, he does so much work there, and said, hey, give me best practices, give me protocol, give me what have you for law enforcement. So, um, so stay tuned because haven't heard back because I think we're all questioning what can be done. Mouth guard, it's something, but even if you put them in, um, in headgear, you know, put, put them in the best football helmet, you know, there's still, the only thing that stops our brain when we are jarred is our skull. So our brain is still hitting. So even in helmets, no matter how good they are, you're not stopping it. And the rotational hits are even worse. So when you're hit, when you're T-boned, when you're, when you're sucker punched, all of those pieces are still counting. So I'm not sure, unlike the NFL, where you have a set of rules and you've got officials that that are there to enforce those rules. Well, we know with law enforcement, when it comes to Peter Public, there are no rules. The officers have to play by rules. You know, they're not allowed to hit after they've been cuffed or what have you. There's a whole lot of rules that our officers have to, you know, abide by. And are truly monitored right now by body uh, by body worn cameras, which will absolutely clear far more than it will ever indict, just like car cams did. Just new and scary, but absolutely far more beneficial. But but when you have a population that does not play by rules, that will never play by rules. I don't know how to safeguard. So. If we can't safeguard, then we need to put a protocol in place afterwards to then protect them. You know, woodpeckers, you know, they, they, they peck for a living, but I believe their tongue actually wraps around their brain and protects it. Same thing with rams. They have built in shock absorbers. Human beings do not. We were not supposed to sustain these head injuries and they cause changes and they cause that impulse control stuff that we see. 
know, how many of my patients' spouses have said he's bipolar? You know, of course, I, I love, you know, every spouse always diagnoses for me. It's always lovely. Um, and the truth is bipolar, late teens, early 20s, first break. They've ruled out all the really good stuff by having psychologicals prior to the time of getting on the job. So if we're seeing that behavior, if you are seeing the impulsivity in your departments, that is a clue that they need help, but it's not necessarily my arena of help. And if you're going to send them into my arena, you need to be sending them into an arena that's doing that concussion intake that says, before we talk through some of this stuff, I need to know what the background is. So one of my individuals who had gotten himself jammed up, a stellar career, incredible officer, had no memory of actually hitting the individual. You go back into his history, he boxed, he played, um, he played football for from the time he was little right on through into um, into college, goes on, ends up um, in several bar fights, ends up on the job, incredibly active, um, countless flashbangs, was on the SWAT team. You know, these are my adrenaline guys. Um, and so it wasn't again until recently sent him up to the neurologist because again, now I'm looking at the world very differently. And he is one of the few people they did find um, frontal lobe damage um, and the white matter in his brain to be affected, which, which does explain for this piece. And you know, a, a truly a double-edged sword, um, heartbreaking because, because the, the concern and the likelihood is that we're looking at somebody with CTE. Mm -hmm. um, what his wife had come in, I asked her to come in because the other thing that we need to realize is that people with brain injuries, cops are horrible historians anyway, but people with head injuries are horrendous historians. So being able to bring a spouse in or somebody who's been with you for years, whether it's your best buddy or what have you, to help with histories has also been really important. So, you know, she's been through a tremendous amount too, dealing with, you know, what her husband's gone through you know, leaving the job and, and, um, and having so much heartbreak from that. And when I asked him to do, and she's a nurse by trade, not uncommon, cops and nurses, cops and teachers, um, is that when I had him do this, and so, you know, she's doing it, you know, I'm doing it, and he's doing it, and he's out here. And the finger she, to the nose. Here. Yeah, and, and, and he's like out here, and he's like, um, okay, it's split. And so his wife got angry. He's like, no, I, I, you know, she said where it goes into two, bring it to your nose. And he like snaps at her. He's like, I know, I see two figures out here. And she burst into tears because it was the first time that there was something concrete where she realized, oh my God, I think there's something to this. I'm a nurse. I miss this. Oh God. And for me, my anger at a department and, and so many other pieces for just not knowing, and I can't be angry for not knowing what we didn't know, but now truly, I, I believe that this will be the rest of my life's work is to be able to get the word out there, to be able to hopefully use um, my career 
and my accomplishments to continue to help get the word out to be able to change not just protocol, but truly the trajectory of mental health and police suicides for what we will do in the United States will be done worldwide. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, the research can't wait to see it. I hope every law enforcement uh, commander sees it. I hope the chiefs and sheriffs see it as well as the line officers. Uh, you know, frequently we we only see the manifestations sometimes in uh, aberrant behavior that we seek to remedy with discipline or sending them to uh, you know, the behavioral science unit. Uh, but yeah, oftentimes we see this behavior result in things that um, we see as disciplinary and that needs to change as well. Absolutely. Hey, I, I, I totally appreciate your time. I want to wrap up, but just ask you final thoughts about switching subjects a little bit. Cop line, you're getting calls in 24 7, 365. You've allocated and trained a team of retired officers who can definitely understand what the callers are talking about. Uh, tell us about some of the success you've had there. So, um, so the success is really the success of. of of the servant's heart of the men and women that have, after doing a full career, continued to give. It is, I, I have a, I'm a cog in a wheel on this one, um, that we have been able to truly bring together um, because the people that, that choose to volunteer for Copline, it's unusual in, we take no state or federal money. So the integrity of these lines was imperative for us. So um, uh, poor financially and rich with heart, um, but heart is really, heart was, was what drives um, cop line. Confidentiality was imperative. You know, officers really, the barriers to seeking treatment are that they are scared to death that if they call or reach out for help, that it's gonna cost them their gun badge and patch. So that cop line, um, the success is, is I believe in that, that um, we don't reach for suicide. So, um, so an officer is allowed to call up a line and talk about wanting to die, talk about that worst day without worrying that there's gonna be a knock on the door. Um, and and our, our officers, our retired officers are all trained to deal with anything from the bad day. So we get about 350 calls a month of which 95% of them are bad day calls. You know, a, a societal shift, uh, departmental issues, politics, relationship, low-hanging fruit. Three and a half percent are um, are officers involved in a critical incident, not necessarily in the past 24, it's 96 hours, but that something could have triggered this that they've never spoken about. And then one and a half uh, percent is the ones that I say that make the guys ass pucker. They are the officer that is crying, um, intoxicated with a firearm with the intent that this will be the last call. Um, and being able to connect with um, with a trained officer that's not going to hyper focus on that that has been trained to be able to sit in that hole and bear witness to that pain and be able to help them through the pain. Or a lead trainer um, is the only man that we know, the only person we know that has a dual expertise. So Dr. Jay Nagdeman 
was the director of the Los Angeles Suicide Prevention Hotline, which is the oldest hotline in the United States, and is now, um, he's been with the Los Angeles Police Department in their behavioral science services for 17 years. So Dr. Nagdeman is the lead trainer. And what we also know is that since 1963 to 2019, that um, the Los Angeles Suicide Prevention Hotline has fielded over 7,500,000 calls, of which two people died by suicide on the lines, two. So the last thing we wanna do is breach for a statistically truly number that, that, that has no statistical relevance and ruin our lines. Because when you, when you trace a call, you ping a phone, who shows up at that officer's door? Another officer. So their, their, their embarrassment, their fear is so enormous and it's now come to fruition. Mm. And then the second part of that is the officer that came to Officer Smith's door now goes back to his or her department and says, don't ever call cop line. They're full of crap. They're really not confidential. I just mm. ended Bob Smith's career. So, so we have, so we've removed that. We are really vigilant about, um, about who gets on these lines. We've, we're into our 19th training. And I will tell you that um, not everybody makes it through the training. These volunteers have to pay their way to the training. They have to pay for their accommodations. And it is not a guarantee that they're going to end up answering these lines. And the three real reasons is because, number one, a lot of them don't want to relive the worst day of their life, that this training is a lot more intense than they thought, and it brings up too many memories and, um, and issues for them so that they self-exclude. And the other two are, um, we take away uh, cops very favorite toy, and their very favorite toy is, um, is giving advice and judging. So once we take away that very favorite toy, if they can't acquire the active listening skills, then they unfortunately can't, um, can't be on the lines. So I, I, think, I think the magic ingredient is the heart, the hard work, the fact that they earn their position on this line and the fact that we're not full of crap. <laughs> it's pretty simple. Well, let's end on that note. Hey, thank you for being on the show. Stephanie Samuels, founder and director of Copline, 24-7 helpline for police officers and researcher on repeated head injuries to officers. That's really valuable work. Thank you again. Thank you so much. It's truly an honor to be here. All right. Hey, to our listeners, let me know what you think. Uh, check out Stephanie Samuels and her work. And you'll see in our show notes that we've got the www.copline.org information there, the 1-800-COPLINE number and some other information for you. All right, stay safe. Thanks for listening. And I hope to talk to you again real soon.